the world desperately, desperately needs us to be who we are. Welcome to Cringe Watchers, a podcast where we invite our expert friends to binge watch TV and talk about sex. For this episode, we watched Sex Education and asked Francisco Ramirez to spill the tea on the birds and the bees. Layla, are you binging or cringing this week? I am binging. I watched a show on Hulu um, maybe this summer called This Way Up by Ashling B, the Irish uh, stand-up comedian. And I really loved it. I plowed through a bunch of episodes and I just discovered that there was a whole second season that I didn't know was up there. Highly recommend this show, especially if you uh, liked Catastrophe because Sharon Horgan is in it and also a producer, or if you liked Fleabag and are sort of craving a um, unapologetically sexually active main character sort of stumbling through life. But uh, it's about Ashley B, an Irish immigrant in London who teaches ESL and uh, falls for the much older uh, father of one of her two T's and a lot else happens. And also Asif Mamvi is randomly in it. Love that. Definitely want to check that out. Thanks for the rec. Lori, are you binging or cringing? I'm going to do a historical cringe this week. It happens to be on trend with our topic for this episode. And so I am retroactively cringing Bill Clinton for firing Jocelyn Elders, who was the Surgeon General of the United States, the first African-American to hold that position and only the second woman. And she did so as part of the Clinton administration. And she was a badass. She was a very sex positive black woman who made all the links that you would want to see someone make between reproductive health and justice and the health of the country, of the nation. And as part of a number of comments that she made about why people should know about their bodies, she mentioned that masturbation could, learning about masturbation as part of age appropriate sexuality education could help people avoid unwanted pregnancy and avoid unwanted STIs. And the conservative forces came out in full effect to critique her for this. And she actually ended up getting fired because Bill Clinton did not um, stick with her and defend her. And I think time has done nothing but um, show her to have been correct. And I'm still salty that, um, you know, that they that things went down that way. But just want to shout her out as uh, an icon of mine and and someone who was just way ahead of the game when it comes to sex positivity and sexual reproductive health and rights. Timely on so many levels, also because of the American Crime Story series on Clinton and Lewinsky right now. Can you imagine having that scandal as a president and still having the gall to fire this brilliant woman for making a very scientific statement about what might help the youth of America. It's completely offensive. Totally. Well, Layla, um, today might be our most requested show ever. We are covering sex education on Netflix. And so we have two disclaimers around this. One We know you all wanted us to do this show. Sex education, it's playful, it's inclusive. There is a lot of good to be found in this show when it comes to representations of queerness, representations of various sexual sexualities, racial identities. There's just a lot of positivity in how they frame these issues. We still hate Netflix. That is the disclaimer for this show. We are not here for um, what Netflix has been doing with platforming Dave Chappelle on what he has to say about trans people. And our love for sex education does not get Netflix off the hook for being, in the words of Hannah Gadsby, a, quote, amoral algorithm cult. So you're still that. We do not absolve you. Um, But that being said, 
This show, Sex Education, is almost so on the nose for cringe watchers that we considered not doing it, even though you all were requesting it and requesting it. But it's too good. We had to do it. And for this episode, we chose to watch the season two finale of Sex Education, which has a lot going on. But in particular, we wanted to talk about the storyline where Adam leaps onto stage and finally publicly embraces Eric by very adorably asking him to hold his hand. And Eric, of course, accepts, effectively ditching his new, very good-looking boyfriend, Rahim, who did not deserve an iota of what he got, but he still got it. And that is sometimes life and teen sexuality. Justice for Rahim. (laughs) This was a very exciting episode. A lot happens, but the basic premise of sex education, and one of the reasons everyone loves it, is because it centers Gillian Anderson uh, doing her British accent, one of her two accents, and being the uh, incredibly open and overly honest uh, mom and professional sex therapist who uh, is takes private clients and then in a cringeworthy uh, way ends up being the therapist at her own son's school, every teen's nightmare. This, I don't know about you, Lori, and, and how much uh, birds and the bees you got from your mom, but my mom, when I was growing up, was a reproductive health researcher. And we were always the house that had tons of condoms, overly open conversation. I knew all the words for the body parts. I was always the kid taking my friends to Planned Parenthood or who people came to when they thought they were pregnant or needed advice on what kind of birth control to use just because we had At the time, I didn't appreciate it was a very open household. At the time, it was just super embarrassing. (laughs) I think there's a lot of similarity to what you're describing and what Otis goes through in this show. Uh, I can say I had quite that level of support in my uh, upbringing, but I was very blessed to have a sex-positive friend group. We celebrated milestones in each other's sexuality. It was pretty cute. And I do tell my own story later in this episode um, to Francisco about some of what I experienced in my public school upbringing around sex education. So I'm definitely interested to hear what you guys think about that. And I also couldn't help but notice that there are some similarities between what we talk about with sexuality education and the broader dialogue that's going on right now in America, especially around critical race theory and what we teach our children about the racial justice journey of our nation. Um, So they call it critical race theory, but what they really mean is just history. Um, But I just wanted to point that out because it's been really interesting to see how um, critical race theory became like a huge wedge issue in the most recent elections. And I think it is also pretty telling that there really isn't a similar movement for sex education in this country today, even among liberal parents. Um, So it just feels like we have really far to go in terms of smashing the taboos around this topic, but they are so necessary and very life-saving. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a couple of our friends, uh, Laura Lindbergh, who we've called out before because she had a a piece about Bridgerton that we cited during that episode, uh, and it's my former Guttmacher colleague, and Leslie Cantor, who worked with both of us at Planned Parenthood and is now at Rutgers, came out with a study just earlier this month saying that nearly half of teens in the US don't get sex ed that meets even the most basic uh, standards, meaning that it talks about delaying sex, it talks about birth control, it talks about preventing HIV and STIs. And maybe even more alarming is that they found that kids today are less likely than 25 years ago to be getting comprehensive sex ed. So I think the information you were pooling with your friends, the information I was getting from my mom really set us up for success. But I also think that's why we went to our guest today, Francisco Ramirez, a good friend, an old friend, and uh, someone I've always admired for taking sex ed to the streets. Uh, Francisco is maybe best known for his project, um, hashtag free sex ed, where he goes at all hours of the night to city parks, to sidewalks in New York City, down into subway stations, puts up a sandwich board sign and says, come and ask me advice and sometimes records it. And he has just been a renegade providing mostly an open ear, but also comprehensive information to anyone who wants it for many years now. He does a lot online. He does a lot globally. And we were really excited to talk to him uh, about this episode, especially because as you and I have talked about before, working in global health, so much of opposition 
to sex education isn't just about fearing that young people will become more sexually active if you tell them about sex. It's this idea that uh, that homosexuality is contagious or tainted and teaching about anything about queer existence is risky in the minds of the parents you're describing. And so we really wanted to get into it with, with Francisco to talk about young people, the information they're receiving, and their experience and ability to come out and, and recognize their own sexual identity and, and have really positive experiences. Absolutely. And of course, that really pernicious line of thinking, uh, it permeates everywhere. It's not, you know, particular to any one culture or place. We see it in the U.S. We see it around the world. Um, conservative forces closing in on this idea that, um, you know, teaching kids about the truth somehow ruins them or spoils them or makes them vulnerable to these dark forces when in fact all it does is give them access to more information and options. So um, we Without further ado, we will uh, bring you into our conversation with Francisco. We get into all of this and more, and we really hope you enjoy this episode. Yay. Francisco, welcome. Thank you so much for coming today. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to talk about sex education with you. Uh, there is also a lot that happens in the episode that we asked you to watch. It's a season finale. And so it's jam packed. There are tons of couples. But our conversation today, we want to follow the relationship arc of Eric and Adam. They are two young men who have two very different coming out stories. In this episode, we see Adam get to be the hero and literally leap onto a stage and make a very public gesture. Whereas Eric from the pilot has been out and proud, a fabulous character. And we also get the sense that even if he, Eric wanted to be concealing his identity, he's not someone who's passing. He's not someone who had a, much of a choice of coming out. He has always been who he is, whereas Adam is more of uh, a straight passing person who had to announce to the world or had the luxury of announcing to the world. So before we get into the romantic elements of this show, I wanted to start with, you know, what's at risk when when young people come out? Because these two young men had two very different routes. Yeah, the risk. Oh, gosh. Um, also, can I just jump in on something that you said? And can I add a little bit of um, sasson, a little bit of seasoning? Please so do. <laughs> we love the seasoning. Okay, great. <laughs> Especially if it's spicy. It's it is spicy. It's almost Layla. I love you and adore you. So this is not this is not any kind of clapback. It's a it's like a a challenge to our understanding of what happens in that episode. So this idea that Adam gets to be the hero, which I heard you say, I agree. In many ways, Adam gets to be the hero. To me, I couldn't help but like my heart was racing for Eric in the sense that Eric consistently is showing up right? Like day after day and minute after minute and all of that going to your question of like risk, risk and energy that that just takes to potentially be aware, you know, have feelers on in a certain kind of way. Um, that takes a lot of hero, shiro, thero energy um, as well. So I think- No, it's true. It, that I, I don't consider yeah. that a clapback. I fully <laughs> endorse the concept that Eric is the true hero here. Yeah, or every, maybe this is this is the hallmark part of me. Maybe everyone's uh, hero, shiro, thero. Because when I think of your question of like, what's at risk um, with coming out, there is so much at risk. I just spent a, um, a week at uh, the University of Illinois where I get to live on campus uh, for the week and hang out with uh, an amazing- amazing set of students most of them freshmen or maybe some of them sophomores and we're talking mostly about coming out and we, we among other things i should say sexual pleasure and all sorts of things but we have the opportunity to have these evening talks and then we have what i call spilling the tea time where from like 9 p.m to like one or two or later we just sit in a room and like storytell and in this storytelling so much of it is about identity and coming out and we get to hear one-on-one -on -one about what those experiences like, what is at risk? So familial relationships, obviously, friendships, right? The potential ways in which these can, things can shift. Our own sort of sense of identity of, you know, uh, and our own sort of sense of self-esteem. What if I'm not accepted? What does that mean to me and how I sort of hold myself or think about myself? Uh, so whether it's from other people or from us, sometimes it's, you know, everything from actual 
home life, right? Will I will I be kicked out of my home? What will the repercussions be if, you know, depending on who finds out or what their reaction is? So a lot of it, we talk a lot about, you know, seeing what can be in our control, in quotes, um, and what isn't. And so much of these conversations, I try to talk with people in a way that we give a real sense of, I guess, control or agency around it. Coming out is like, I see like the cycle piece, right? Like I put out something to you and then what the F is going to happen with the thing that I just said to you. I love how you frame that, Francisco. And thank you for the work that you do because like young people need these spaces and, and opportunities to have conversations with accountable figures. There's one aspect of this love triangle that Layla and I really wanted to talk to you about because of course, both Eric and another one of his love interests, Rahim, are the children of immigrants. And so Eric's family is fabulously West African. They are portrayed as very religious. And Rahim is of North African descent. And we learn that his family moved to France after fleeing their country of origin for religious reasons. And so one thing I really, I love sex education. Like it's it's so wonderful in so many ways. But one thing that I really appreciate about the show is that they were pretty honest about the, some of the ways in which religion can factor into these conversations for young people. But they also didn't villainize specifically Eric's church as like massively intolerant. He actually, in a different episode, has his pastor say to him explicitly, like, you're welcome here. Um, and of course, tolerance is not the end all be all of acceptance. Like we can do better. But um, Eric in particular seems to be accepted in his church the way that he is, which is... I think, wonderful to see. Um, but I'm curious how you see religion and culture playing into young people's ability to open up about these issues, about gender and sexuality. How much is that a factor in, in terms of what you are seeing? Thanks so much for noting that. I absolutely find that religion shows up in, I want to say, unexpected ways. I had an opportunity to check myself. In fact, this uh, just yesterday, I think it was, or two days ago when it was... Um, uh, with this awesome group of um, young people. And um, you know, we're having all these really dynamic conversations about religion. And I noticed that I was, without realizing it, kind of making an assumption that for many people who feel that religion um, is really holding them back or creating friction between what they feel or what they sense about themselves and their sexual orientation or gender identity or gender expression, for example, that there would be a natural, I don't know, tension in some way and, and sort of like a some degree of kind of like pushing away or like, or like real discomfort with it. Um, but having an opportunity to really um, dig in, not just with this group of people, but people over the years, I can really appreciate the ways in which it's so much more nuanced and like I can feel my body sort of like tighten and release as I say that because there can be a tension. And for some people, the tension is with what a religion may say about, um, you know, a young person or a, an adult for that matter, about their sexual orientation or gender identity, for example. But sometimes the tension is really about how people see us. Yes. Um, and we may be fine with what our religions yes. or, or religious teachings tell us. And we might actually have a way that it all sort of makes sense together. Uh, but other people may sort of have their own impressions about what things mean for us. Yeah. I mean, that that's so interesting. I love the way you frame religion showing up in surprising ways because, you know, Rahim, I can't remember if it's in this episode, but at one point Rahim says that he's an atheist. And I think just his character being a Muslim immigrant, being so out and wanting to make out in public with Eric and and being more out than, than other kids seem to have been at their prep school community beforehand is kind of turning a stereotype on its head and and is really interesting in its own right. I wanted to ask both of you, or all three of us, just real talk, are we Team Eric or Team Rahim? Because if you've been following this show, <laughs> Eric chooses Adam, and it's, it's sort of a masochistic choice. Adam started out as the bully. Adam has not treated Eric well. Eric, Adam has a lot of baggage. And then at the same time, we see Adam and Eric can laugh at the same things. Adam makes Eric sparkle. Adam might get Eric in different ways. What What do we think, Francisco? I'll start with you. If you were in Eric's shoes, who do you think he should have chosen? Oh, gosh. 
Lila, I was hoping you'd start with Lori. I'm so conflicted. <laughs> we planned this in advance, Francisco. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's a setup. Uh, well, okay. A, it's complicated. Real complicated. And I love, I love, Layla, that you pulled on the threads of making them laugh and then making, and then you don't sparkle with, uh, who was that? Was that his, was that his mom? I, yeah, no, it was his mom. It was his mom. Which is, again, I love. It's the, the very religious, either Nigerian or Ghanaian mother. <laughs> Moms be knowing yes. also. Yes. Yeah. Like, was awesome. I hate, I always hated when my mom didn't like one of my boyfriends because I was like, I know she's going to be right at the end of the day about this. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. This is very diplomatic. This is very diplomatic. I know you've got an opinion. <laughs> I, I, I have, wait, I have too many opinions, as a matter of fact. <laughs> Um, get ready for episode three. Also, just kidding. Of cringe watchers. So, I of course this the sparkle line happens, and I'm like, oh my gosh. And then I was like, but also, is Eric supposed to sparkle? What does Eric's essence look like? Is Ooh. Eric's essence about quiet and pensiveness? Is Eric's essence about gratitude? Mm. Is Eric's essence about being still? I mean what is Eric's essence? And sparkle makes sense to me. I feel like I'm a sparkler, right? Bring on the unicorns, bring on the glitter. But I just wasn't sure. I, that's one aside. And then on this laughing piece, there was another part I was like, my first which was like, oh, right. That's why it's meant to be, right? It's not going to be with Raheem because there's, that, there's not that laugh. But no, I don't want to let that like impact me too much, right? Because of course they're going to laugh more they have like this history right so you feel a different level of maybe vulnerability or just um ways of kind of getting each other in, in what your you know sense of humor is or delight and all that sort of thing i don't want to put too much into it i think that there's so much about being still and being who you are my thesis for the entire week that i was um in illinois and maybe it is in fact for this episode as well maybe it's for my life is that the world desperately, desperately needs us to be who we are. That's my belief that all the world is kind of requiring almost, if you will, of us. Who are you? Okay, great. Please be that person. So is Eric's sort of moment, current place, present being about connecting with Adam because it really does give Eric what Eric needs in this moment and connects with who Eric is, then great. Then go ahead, be with Adam. If not, you know, maybe it's with Rahim and maybe it's with, you know, none of the above or some other configuration. But to answer your question more directly, because really I have too many thoughts. Whenever I watch something like this where there's a love triangle, I catch myself rooting for someone. <gasps> mm. Who were you rooting for? I was rooting for Joy. And surprise, I really was. I didn't. I didn't. I wasn't rooting for anyone. <laughs> I was kind of able to see the present moment, and also I could see the like what might happen next with Raheem. I just I talked to so many people doing free sex advice in the park all these years, where they come to me and they're like, "Oh my gosh, this thing broke, relationship, whatever, bad day, yada yada yada." And then I'm like, "Oh my gosh, drums, where are you? How are you feeling, etc." And then they come back to the park a week later or the next day, and they're like, oh my gosh, you would never guess. I would have never <laughs> thought, but I ran into this other person and all these surprises unfolded. Joy, joy, joy. And so everyone's gonna be okay, is my hope. That's what I was sort of rooting for. But yeah, I, I'm I drawn to, to like, joy I hate to root against joy, but I gotta, I gotta <laughs> give it to Lori now. You, you gotta, <laughs> somebody's gotta pick. <laughs> okay, well, I was rooting for Adam, and I think the show set us up to root for Adam. And I actually think the show kind of has Francisco's point of view in the sense that they were maybe a little bit reflecting back to us that so many queer characters on screen are so flattened. And they finally introduced like another queer man of color to the show with Rahim and they were kind of like you think that means that that's going to be Eric's love interest because Eric's this queer character he's ostensibly so comfortable in his own skin he's standing out in these ways and to your point Francisco showing up in these ways now we're going to give him his perfect love interest 
even down to being light-skinned and attractive to the women in school and they, you know, and now we're going to give him his perfect, like, queer corollary. And I think then to set us up like that with introducing Raheem's character and then slowly let it dawn on us that that's not where Eric's going to be going kind of just gave Eric a little bit more room to be a little bit more of a fleshed out character on this show. My opinion of what the show was doing with having like Eric and Adam choose each other is to just kind of push back against some of the audience expectations around what these characters must be seeking and how they must be kind of paired off and then kind of forgotten about now that they have their happily ever after that maybe straight people might project onto them. Yeah, totally. What about you, Layla? I was rooting for Adam because, you know, from the from the moment where he hugs Ola and says that he's never had a friend before to the moment where he's running passionately and you know something is going to happen, uh, I was rooting for him. If I were Eric, I feel like Raheem's probably more my type. <laughs> Political, brooding, <laughs> super smart, <laughs> francophone. That's That's my type. <laughs> I can totally see that, Layla. And I've had not a small number of situations in my own love life where I'm like, I should be going for this person, but I'm not. Surprise. And, you know, there's also some shame in that, even if it's in a more, you know, hetero scenario. And so I just love that we kind of gave that to Eric's character. Um, But Francisco, I'm curious, I mean, sort of building on this, do you feel like it's getting better? (laughs) Like, is it getting better? Are we getting, you know, more options for our queer youth? Personally, there were not a lot of kids coming out in my high school when they did. They face a lot of, I think, challenges. And do you think that that's changed for this generation? And if so, in what ways? Absolutely. When we zoom out, you know, on some number of generation or generations, we can see certain ways in which there can be more opportunities to exhale, more opportunities to build communities, more information or experiences from other people at one's, you know, reach or fingertips or, you know, available to us. And and that can't go understated. The ability to find some kind of uh resources to text a number to call someone to know that maybe there's like a you know alliance at your school for example or in your community someplace that you can actually walk or move into go into and uh and be supported it makes a huge difference and of course what i find is interesting is that to the person who's young and queer and feels uncomfortable still that so much of that progress doesn't end up amounting to to like a shift in my feelings of fear what matters is I'm glad that you mentioned the friendship part and the hug, uh, you know, with that person. Like these are the things that end up really making a difference for us. So the progress is there. I see the progress on a global level with my work at the UN. Absolutely, you know, still progressing and moving forward. And there just seem to be more and more avenues. Um, but of course, there needs to be, you know, lots more visibility if all different people have different experiences without a doubt. I would say we have still a long way, a long way to go for people to feel safe. I just talk to people every week and they're just, they're, they're struggling with some part of this. Yeah. You're taking through of, of, of different categories of identity reminds me that there was uh, an earlier scene. I don't think it was in this episode where Ola discovers that she might be pansexual by taking an online quiz. And at a different point, before Adam's big leaping onto stage, first of all, we also need to discuss Romeo and Juliet, the musical. <laughs> Can't all be serious sex <laughs> talk. But before before he leaps onto stage, Adam comes out to Eric by saying, I think I might be bisexual. I mean, it's not really coming out because they've clearly had a thing going. But it's interesting that they're, all, they're, they're finding these different labels and they're sort of one of everything on this show. Uh, which which I love about this show, but also the show is a little bit of a utopia where there's one of everything and, and everyone accepts everyone eventually. Uh, but I'm wondering what you think 
of all these different labels because in it, it feels like Adam and Ola found, find real power in these labels that help them understand something they're feeling and something they're trying to discover about themselves. But then it also feels like in our movement, in the media, there's this growing conversation, especially driven by young people, uh, rejecting labels or saying everything's fluid, everything's a spectrum. What is the power and what are the drawbacks of, of labels? I was just speaking with uh, some folks earlier um, yesterday about labels. And uh, for as many people who, young people who feel that, you know, let's do away with labels, they're not helpful. There are also a lot of people who who know that, like, as a thing, like, okay, this is something I that maybe I aspire to or maybe makes sense, you know, theoretically. But for me, like, I still need to know who I am. So I can, I can give a whole talk on, like, there's time, there's space, you know, be yourself, you know, it's a journey, yada, 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 all these things. And then someone can still really uh, come up to me afterwards and, and say, I respect that. I hear that. I do need to know, like, who I am. Like, how should I actually identify here? To a listener of this um, podcast, of this episode, then I would say, please acknowledge whatever part of you is speaking around labels. If you feel like a label is great for you and it's something that you really want to seek out, I really want to just honor that and appreciate that, respect that. Um, and if they, they don't seem to make so much sense for you, then that's that's also a beautiful thing. Um, for the people who feel like they do want a label, they can, can take a bit of um, introspection and reflection on both the terms and what we notice. And as we sort of take our temperature, as I suggest with people over time, hey, what are you feeling today? What are you feeling tomorrow? One example I can give is that one of my favorite exercises is something I call I'm a person who, and I invite young people to do this, freaking anyone, not just young people, <laughs> adults as well. Who are we sexually? What turns us on? How do we see the world? What moves us right now? And so often for so many reasons, a lot of it is shaming and toxic legacies we've, you know, that have been bestowed on us or that we've inherited, um, reject that introspection. So I, my exercise is uh, I'm a person who, and all you have to do is move throughout your day and you say, I'm a person who, and you fill in the blank. And it could be anything. It could be an act, something that you did and you're noticing it, something that you're feeling, an anxiety. You don't judge it. You just continue to bring it. So I'm a person who had a Caesar salad for breakfast. I'm a person who loves these fake um, tulips here on my desk. I'm a person who's feeling like I need um, a rest and a recharge. I'm a person who feels in a cuddle uh, moment um, now that now that November is upon us. So you get to sort of build this and then you see, okay, the summation of this, what does this seem to point to? Francisco, I'm a person who loves that prompt. And I really appreciate that you're really connecting the fact that like sex and sexuality is also just about life and about figuring out who we are as people. And like that has to do with like sex ed and coming out and sexualities, but it also just has to do with like all different parts of our identity. And I'm curious if overall you feel like the internet has made it easier or harder to figure out like who we are, the truth of who we are, and especially for young people. I mean, you talked about some of the like toxicity and shame that can accompany um, some of these realizations um, where, you know, that prompt, I'm a person who can start to feel really scary when you are seeing all this information online that says, well, if you're a person who does this, then all of these things are also true about you. So that can be really hard. And I also know that you have like an app and I'm curious just like how you how you think about the role of like technology and the internet in like facilitating young people's journeys in these areas. Yeah, so part of it de depends on algorithms and what shows up in your feed. For a lot of people, the gram is unfortunately going to just, you know, create feelings of not good enough. I think our app, okay, so is great in that it's free. You could join anonymously. You don't have to give your personal information. And then you, in your own words, get to ask a question. And we have a team of experts working around the clock who answer your question within hours. And the, the, the beauty of it is that we make sure that our experts don't just give sort of stock answers by any, by any means. And that really the first questions are about, or the first things that we usually come back with are empathy, appreciation. Sometimes it will then be clarification or, you know, prompts that um, allow for 
perhaps further reflection or having a chance to kind of sharpen what our challenge is that we're experiencing. And so in an instance like that, I think technology is amazing in the sense that what we're doing is we're encouraging people to continue that conversation with themselves um, about, hey, what's here? What am I experiencing? Where where might I want or need to go? Um, and the gram has all kind of great hashtags, but the last few weeks that I've been talking really intensely with young people in universities, a lot of them are talking about um, actually like how how do I go on like a, a vacay from the gram? Because it's really, it's just slowing me down. It's not helping me out. Um, and I love that that young people are, are like saying this out loud and, and finding ways to support each other to actually turn down um, some of that use. It's interesting. I feel like you're describing that you have built an app to spread more of you across the world, because I know you've been offering this kind of advice since since we met. And I think if I think of you, Francisco, I think of hashtag free sex advice and your work over many years, going to parks, to subway platforms, sidewalks all over the city, probably beyond New York City, but I think of you as such a New York City person. And just putting down two chairs and a and a sandwich board sign saying, you know, free sex relationship advice and letting anyone come up and sit down across from you. And I know um, as someone who's attended more than a few happy hours together, how good you are at like locking in and really listening to someone and even in a crowd making me or the person you're talking to feel like you're the only person there and that this is a completely, as you say, empathetic private conversation that can go anywhere. And I mean, just to bring it back to the topic that we've been talking about today, which is young people and and coming out and the many different versions and stories there are there. I'm wondering what kinds of, of advice people have sought over the years. How many of the people who sit down across from you in these different settings are asking advice about how to come out, are coming out to you first, are, are talking about the challenges of, of identity and finding oneself. Oh, I just, I came up with a new answer to that. As you were, as you were asking that amazing question, I was like, I think I have a new answer. I think what actually happens in the chair or in the chairs in the park or on the park bench, subway, wherever I'm doing the free sex advice, is that people are in a way coming out to themselves. Yeah. Ooh, wow. When I do free sex advice, I do it in all sorts of places. Um, but I will totally admit that I have favorite scenarios and places. So I am at my happiest when I am doing free sex advice on the south end of Union Square Park in New York City. Because there's all kind of people crisscrossing. It's not, you know, uh, so homogeneous in, in some ways. Um, you can certainly make some... Wow. You know, it looks a certain way, but yet there are lots of people traveling to and from places. It's a pub of, you know, all sorts of lines coming together at the subway. But my favorite is there, south, summer, midnight. And let me tell you, wow, Ooh. midnight at free sex advice is different from noon. <laughs> Damn. <And> mid- <laughs> for real. Midnight is hot. I've got the videos and transcripts and audio, like, recordings to prove it. Midnight, 11 p.m., 10 p.m. is hot. <laughs> and things are coming out. People will cry at any hour when they're sitting down, right? People will tell, you know, things um, that are intimate. But real-ish, real stuff comes out around 10, 11, midnight, 1, 2 when I'm out there. Regardless of the time, though, what what's happening in those moments, but especially at those midnight moments, is people are creeping into some piece of their psyche, experience, story, journey, memory, and picking up something, if you will, an idea, a fantasy, something that feels like a weird idea and saying, hmm, this thing happened and it's still in my mind. They're asking me, what do you think of this? But they're really asking themselves in many ways, like, what do I think about this? What do they think about this, right? So the coming out for them is this recognition of like, hey, there's this thing that's been on my mind. I think it add, might add up to this. Is that okay? Is this what's really happening? And if it does, what what might this mean for myself? What's going to happen next? So this coming out happens on all sorts of levels. But to the the, the center of your, your original question, do people come up and, and ask about coming out all the time, all the time? And sometimes it's the central piece. Um, but even if it's not central, it the ways in which it layers on. So someone can be, you know, first time New York, just moved into the dorms or whatever it is, and they have all these things going on. And they're like, and identify as 
queer on top of it. And instinctively, I feel like we start to sort of shorthand what that might mean for people, but they get to tell tell me in their own words. It adds another challenge or wrinkle, but in my eyes, because I'm an optimistic person, it adds another joy and delight to, okay, how what what do we want to add to this patchwork of your experiences? What comes next? And where, where are you now? And what comes next? Wow. I love that for so many reasons, but especially for how it points to the phenomenon of like when you create this space that doesn't only facilitate like an external knowledge transfer, but it actually facilitates self-reflection as well. And sometimes just by giving people the space to name something, it becomes more real for them. That's really so cool. And kudos to you for creating that space. And now I want to go to Union Square at midnight. But I think we just have like one or two more things we wanted to explore with you, Francisco. This is like so fascinating. You sit at such a fascinating intersection of education and activism. And I wanted to talk to you about a very timely new study that came out. I don't know if you saw this from Guttmacher, but we feel like it's relevant to the conversation today because basically Guttmacher partnered with Rutgers University and they came out with a very alarming finding, which is that only about half of teenagers in the United States are getting sex ed that meets even minimum federal standards, which you can imagine are not themselves particularly <laughs> radical <laughs> or revolutionary. And even though this finding is is new and, and very alarming, I can totally attest to this. Like just to share a personal story, like I went to a large public high school in South Jersey. And when I was a freshman in high school, my high school's version of sex ed consisted of being asked to consume a bag of Cheetos in a classroom with all of my fellow students, and then gulp a glass full of water, swish it around our mouth, and then spit that water back into the glass. And, you know, of course, the glass is filled with orange, like Cheeto flags, and it's nasty. And then As you can imagine, of course, the lesson, quote unquote, of this exercise is that when you have sex, you're exchanging bodily fluids. And the more partners you have, the more Cheeto flex you pick up in your glass of water being your body. So needless to say, like these are not the tools to help one navigate one's sex life safely and pleasurably. Obviously, this is horrible it's not that uncommon. Like I've shared this story and people are like, oh yeah. Or we had our version with like sticky tape becoming less sticky. You know, like there's all of these weird metaphors and this was in the 90s. So not terribly long ago. What is going on with sex ed in America? (laughs) What is going on with sex ed globally? Like what is it going to take for us as a society to actually value this and change this? Woo. This is the thing about those Cheetos. <laughs> I know, right. So gross. I'm just sitting here cringing. <laughs> yeah, that's a cringe. <laughs> you want to talk about cringe? That's a cringe. That's a real cringe. What were, like, what were, can I ask, what, what were the reactions of people when that happened? We fell for it. I mean, we were all uh, like, ew, that's really nasty. Like, no one stood up and was like, this mm-hmm. is wrong. I think... Mm-hmm. Afterwards, in processing and speaking to my friends, I was able to say, you know, that was really weird. I'm not sure that I totally agree with what just happened. But like in the moment, it's just a nasty, visceral response that you have and that people with authority over you are like putting on to you. We take all these messages and I'm sure later I was like, well, I don't I don't think that. But that visceral reaction is still there with you. It, it's something that, you know, I think we all have to deal with that internalized shame around sexuality. Oh my gosh. Yeah, that makes sense that to me that in the moment that we might not have some kind of like immediate pushing back on it reaction because our field of um, like our field of view or our field of you know experiences around sex ed and 
the ideas that, that get transmitted transmitted around it are short and shallow, I think, and not permissive or not expansive or not, you know, don't allow or encourage exploration and thoughtfulness and, and all these great things that we would want it to. And so for, for people to have that moment where it's like, okay, sex ed is Cheetos in a, in a glass. Okay, like, may, yeah, maybe. When I'm thinking about that and the, the data from Rutgers, if this is the data from a couple of days ago, like, I feel like, I can't believe it's what, 2021, but I still feel like, yo, hard reset. Like, wait, let's just, please let us hard reset. Two things. One is hard reset, uh, which is why I, you know, try to do my work. And one of my, one of my go-tos around STI, since you bring up STIs, is that I say that when I say this line, I look people in the eye, I repeat it. I say it multiple times. We have a conversation about it. But I tell people all the time, having an STI, in my, in my opinion, having an STI is or can be a normal part of being a sexually active adult. And I continue to say that. Having an STI is or can be a normal part of being a sexually active adult. I used to say consequence. And then I felt like even that was, there's something in that. I see you both nodding. Yeah. You know, like a part of it, right? Good at it. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, right? And I'll often tell my story. So, oh, my first STI and the first person they called and they were like, join the club. And I was like, really? Like that, that's what I mean by hard reset, like just turning the tables in terms of what our expectations are. But also, I'm really at the point where it's like, all right, well, while we try to do our best on policy and and, and change, I'm also going, we're also going to do it for ourselves. Like I'm, I'm done. I don't have the time. So by that, I mean, that's why I'm in the park. That's why you, whoever is listening to this episode, whoever is out there, your opportunity to support someone cannot be understated. Your opportunity to listen the empathy that you show up with someone, not shooting someone down, even if you don't know what to say, that alone is, in my opinion, I know for me, it saved my life, right? These are the things that we um, can really offer each other. And so 100% sex ed, there's real opportunities for change and improvement, no doubt. But I'm like, let's get radical. That's, I just don't have the time. Yeah, I mean, you said around the world, and I I know all three of us have done a lot of working in global health. And I think working in sexual reproductive health and rights, people often rightly identify abortion as a very challenging and controversial issue. But I think that actually, globally, in parts of this country too, the radical notion that we should talk to young people about sex can be more polarizing, more controversial, and spark more political debate in a, in a lot of places. And I know, linking again back to what we've been talking about today, some of the most heated debates I've seen around the world is the notion that teaching sex ed is teaching promiscuity, or teaching sex ed is teaching young people to be gay. There's, there's a real homophobic thread that assume that if we talk about the existence of gay people, it's somehow a recruitment plan. If we talk about the existence of contraception, young people will have sex. Do you agree, both both of you, that, that sex ed is is maybe the most controversial piece of, of sexual reproductive health and rights? And, and how do we make it less radical? Lori, feel free to jump in too. I'm, I'm thinking how to make it less radical. <laughs> well, I think both of you are, are totally hitting the nail on the head when it comes to, first of all, to your point, Francisco, how sex ed can be life-saving. And to your point, Layla, that it's also a lightning rod. Like, I think those are two sides of the same coin because sex ed is so political at the end of the day because it comes down to what are we teaching our children, our values are, and as a society, what are we imparting to the next generation? And that's why we've seen this issue of quote unquote critical race theory blow up and become freaking uh, an election issue because that like whether you think it's right or not has been able to become a very viable political issue because it cuts right to the heart of, <laughs> you know, what some voters think about when they think about their children and their family values and passing those down. And I actually think there are a lot of interesting corollaries between how the discussion has very quickly evolved around critical race theory in the United States. And, you know, of course, that being a very poor stand in for the concept of teaching the, the racial justice history of our country to children and a corollary between that and 
the topic of sex ed and what we teach our kids about sex and sexuality and even consent. Um, not only just sexuality, but negotiating consent, boundaries, um, how to communicate within different contexts that could be considered intimate or romantic or sexual. So in my opinion, it is very controversial, but I, I, I wouldn't place them at a hierarchy per se, but I, I think all of these things are tied in together, you know, to sort of this liberation or fascism discourse that's happening where we either have control over our bodies at the end of the day or we don't. And there are a lot of powerful forces lining up to exercise control over that today. Mm -hmm. um, and we see that taking place in just in multiple sites. Word. Layla, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> How's that for interesting? I mean, I, I, my instinct is that what do we do about the radical sort of quality of it? This may be an uninformed approach, but I kind of feel like turn on all hoses, like turn on, all, like raise all levers at the same time. And by that, I mean, if we're doing work that is or seems radical to people, let that radical or sort of, you know, work continue. If there's work that is less radical or it's about, you know, the work of listening to people, having spaces where we all sort of come to the table um, and have like a real exchange. I know, for example, some decades ago when I started teaching sex ed uh, in, in schools, uh, we would have a kind of like the parent night where parents would come and they'd ask these amazing questions. And it was the most stressful night of my year for sure because it was like <gasps> everything is you know about this moment do they feel comfortable and so i'd show up looking a certain way i'd show up with certain answers and they were all true it was nothing was obfuscated but i knew that it was you know people needed to be heard and needed to express their real concerns and so i think there was some value in doing that but at the same time there's some part of me that wants to still turn up the radical i'm not done there's things that need to be done and i want you know, all the great policy work and all these things to continue. But I look at it this way. If you're going to shut down our rights in Texas or wherever, that's effing radical. I'm not here for it. I'm going to be radical back. I'm not here. I'm not a confrontational person by nature, <laughs> but I'm real angry. I'm like real angry. I'm not going to have it come out as anger. It's going to come from a place of love, but I'm going to do radical sex ed on the streets or I'm going to do community organizing, whatever it takes. For me, free sex advice was about embedding the sex advice and se or conversations about sexuality rather into the public realm in a place where we have to see it. Even if you don't partake of it, it was really critical to me that you saw it walking by and that if you, if we clutch pearls or whatever it is, we're clutching pearls and we're all going to make it through. We're all going to find a way at the end of the day. I'm not out there with a sign to offend anyone or just to be controversial, but I want us to at least know that we can create the spaces and that we can have these beacons or opportunities for safety and education and reflection and empathy exist amongst all of us, even if something feels like it's too much of like a live wire. Sorry, I'm still going to exist there and people can opt in. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> I opt in. It's a wonderful answer. And it's not a question that can be answered. So I'm just frustrated. And I know we all agree. It's constantly surprising to me how concerned people are with young people not having sex or not getting pregnant or not getting diseases, but also the same people not wanting to talk about sex ever, especially with young people. Bringing it back to the show, the whole premise of this show, Sex Education, is this cringy in, a, in an open-minded way. Uh, premise where the, the premise of sex education is that Jean is this sex educator, professional sex educator. What would it be like if your mom was the most open and explicit sex educator? What would it be like to be her kid? And, and how does she uh, approach the world? And I feel like the theme of so much on this show is parents and kids talking to each other. And you see that at home, Jean and Otis actually have a fairly awkward relationship, especially at the point of the episode that we watched where they're, they're having some and all the kids on the show go through different uh, coming out with their parents, different uh, tough conversations with their parents. If we were talking about an ideal world, what, what do you hope for or counsel parents to be talking to their kids about as they're coming out themselves or to be accepting and open to other people coming out or just people living their full lives? So many ideas. A couple just highlights. One is the main thing on my heart about this is just tons of empathy and not even so much the idea of please share empathy to your child 
but re- really rather just ton- I have so much empathy for parents generally and also in this realm of how to support children. It can be so overwhelming. We may be in quote the right place or know or be supportive or feel like we you know we're we're accepting of things. I mean even so seeing our you know the people that we love perhaps struggle or not open up to us or having this feeling of I want to really take care of this person how I how do I do that or how do I not be a jerk all these kinds of questions or how do I even accept this person I may not you know feel okay with with what they're telling me it can be a lot and so I think sometimes there's this assumption that parents should somehow be prepared for all of this when like sorry that's absolutely impossible like if if we've been doing the crap job we've been doing on educating each other around uh being understanding and appreciative and inclusive especially when it comes to gender diversity uh, uh sexual orientation diversity etc oh my gosh like no i would expect that we're going to be a mess so empathy for you parents <laughs> i got a real awkward but meaningful 10 seconds from my mom where she said basically all i have to say is people are real disrespectful to women please don't be disrespectful to women and that was my entire kind of sex ed talk but i will tell you what it made a difference to me because i was like if that's all mom wants me to know okay logged i like mom i will do something about that i love that go mom uh not the worst i've heard (laughs) by any means um i mean francisco i think we are covering a lot and so i think we can start to wrap up we don't want to end without at least saying something about that sex themed romeo and juliet sexical I, I i don't know what we would call that um do you want to comment on all, at all on that or like anything else about the episode that you wanted to talk about that we just haven't gotten to yet and then we will switch you over to our cringe fire round to end the interview yeah that's exciting there was like one little thing that um stood out to me and i was like yes they consulted with someone to like write this script was it this one where they're talking about the ways in which the young people felt supported by Jean? And they're like, oh, Jean made me feel more comfortable around this. Or am I thinking of a different episode? I think it was this episode. It's definitely in this show. I mean, there's so many things to flag on that episode in addition to what we just discussed. But I just loved, loved that the Volvo was just showing up. The Volvo was in full force, like on heads and vaginal <laughs> openings and all of that. And you're walking through it to get there. And then I just love that somebody from the audience shouts out to, uh, that Jean made, and I'm going to get this slightly wrong, made them feel like the size of their labia were okay. Something like that. Is that right? Something? Yes, did I hear that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I heard that and I was like, I know who you consulted with for this. Ep- like, I know exactly. I know the inner workings of it. And I know that that is the kind of thing like we as sex educators know is a question that shows up. I know it shows up to me all the time. Something about my labia looking a certain way. I had to give that like a shout out to the writers and developers of the show and the way in which that's like, that's real life. These are the things that sex educators are working on. um, And that really it's not just the educators, but really all of us who come to the table to talk about sex ed or, you know, even if we're, you know, the young people in the room, maybe receiving it, for example, that these moments of, hey, my body is actually okay. I'm okay. My labia are okay. It doesn't show up sort of on people's like top 10 list of things that sex ed is about or can be about. But to me, it just felt like the most real life and one of the most touching sort of actually moments of the whole episode, even though it was only about 0.5 seconds. I just, yeah, shout out to vulva representation in full effect yes it was actually giving me like janelle monet tessa thompson pink um which i'm surprised i don't see more halloween costumes just gonna throw that out there for 2022 it's true In the last year, women of color have experienced the greatest job losses with those from black and latinx communities hit hardest Hot Bread Kitchen, an NYC-based nonprofit, has worked to create economic mobility for individuals disproportionately impacted by gender, racial, social, and or economic inequality for over a decade. Hot Bread Kitchen is continuing to invest in the talent and long-term potential of historically excluded essential workers and food entrepreneurs through their workforce development and small business programming. Here's what one of the small business members, Fauzia, of Fauzia's Heavenly Delights has to say. 
The sense of helplessness we felt during the first couple months of the pandemic has transformed into optimism about the growth of our business with Hot Bread Kitchen's continued support. Join Hot Bread Kitchen in investing in recovery for women and small businesses. You can learn more and support their work at hotbreadkitchen.org and follow them on social media at Hot Bread Kitchen. I think it's time for the cringe fire. Bum, bum, bum. Francisco, this is our rapid fire round where we ask you a few closing questions. The first one of which is, is there another show that you're binging right now? (laughs) (laughs) But they're silly. (laughs) We love it. We want silly. We're all looking for escape. I love Spanish language adaptations of uh, US game shows. Oh, that's what I watch. I'm currently watching El Wall. <laughs> <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> I'm so intrigued. <laughs> Where are you accessing that? On YouTube? I subscribe to YouTube TV. And uh, yeah, they keep adding more and more Spanish language channels. So I'm I'm here these days for things in Spanish and things that originate or, or that are shot outside of the US. So I end up watching mostly um, television in Mexico and, and Latin America. And, and But usually game shows and like real cringy talk shows. <laughs> Well, that's actually the next cringe fire question. So we've talked about a few, but what's something that you're finding super cringy at the moment? Mm. On the one hand, I still got used to during the pandemic and as it continues, like staying indoors. So in some ways, I just am on Zoom all day and then, you know, go back to my nest. But all like I mega explode nasty cringe around things that are happening around abortion, like conversations. I don't know if I'm breaking, snapping, like, like setting myself on fire. I am like, it's cringe like times a thousand. I, I can't believe, I can't believe it's 2021 and we're still effing fighting this thing in the way that we have to. Also, no, no words. Cannot believe it either. Is there an aspect of sex or sexuality that you would like to see better portrayed on TV and film and literature? Yes. I would like to see rich depictions of pleasure. And I don't mean necessarily, you know, something which we might flag as like sexually explicit or pornographic, but I love the beauty of ins and outs of mistakes or things that feel kind of like a mistake, the surprises along the way. Um, I feel like there's a real opportunity for us to dig deeper sort of into like existing pains, but also I want to see richer explorations of like the the real deep moments of of pleasure that people find in either big moments or small moments. I feel like so much of it is either strife and challenge and drama, which yes, um, or sexual pleasure, or, you know, these big sort of moments that we saw here in this episode. But just all the sort of, we had sex, it was kind of awkward. And then we went for ice cream, just because the sex was awkward, or just because we wanted ice cream. And like, that mix of weirdness and awkwardness and then pleasure like I see it as a it's I know I'm real abstract and esoteric here but I see it as like a similar life story like let's get expansive when it comes to pleasure Mm, love that and our last cringe fire question do you have a favorite scene or depiction of sex or sexuality and this can be in any medium it could be something you've read something you've seen on TV or film? Does anything come to mind for you? My answer is not going to delight many in your audience, probably. (laughs) It's a weird one, but there is a movie from, okay, 1973, I just looked it up, by Disney, Robin Hood. And there is a moment, (laughs) I've had a crush on that animated Robin Hood, the fox, who was a fox for forever. There is a moment about a third into the film, because I've watched it a hundred times, where Maid Marian looks at Robin Hood, cocks her head, their head to the side, blinks the doughish eyes, and Robin looks back and does the same thing. And I challenge you to go back to this 1973 movie and not melt when you see this, like, the purest drawn depiction of, like, love and open hearts that you might ever see on a screen. That is probably not what you're looking for, Laurie, in terms of, you know sex and media and all these sorts of things no we're looking for your answer and that's your answer and i (laughs) love it (laughs) there you are i love it too and i was strangely sexually obsessed with robin hood men in tights as a child (laughs) 
which the adults in my life were watching, but I think for a very different reason. So maybe there's something here, Francisco. <laughs> I was going to say, it. I really was into the fantastic Mr. Fox with the, the, uh, the George Clooney <laughs> voicing. <laughs> so there's, some, there's a through line for everyone. Francisco, Amazing. thank you so much. This has been incredible. I can think of no better way to spend this time than, than to really rehash such a great show with, a sex ed expert who is really just out here caring for people, thinking about our whole lives and making yourself so accessible. Where where can we find the app? And then where can we next find you in a folding chair giving free sex advice? <laughs> yeah, uh, thank you so much. The app is called OKSO, O-K-A-Y-S-O. It's on uh, Android and iPhone, uh, both stores there. And me, you can find my, uh, my website usually tells uh, enough of a story for where to find me in the park. Uh, and that's my name.com. So Francisco Ramirez.com uh, or on the gram, FDRXYZ, FDRXYZ um, on the gram. Can I say a final shout out? A shout out to you both, Layla and Lori. I know as a media creator myself, people don't always know, but it takes real work to put together a podcast. You don't, you think when you're like designing, you're like, it's cute. We're just going to hit record. And they're like, oh my gosh, no, there's all these things that it takes to create it. And so for you to be at this stage where you are now having already all those um, episodes under your belt and to continue in this when the world is still continues to be on fire, et cetera, um, I just really shout out um, to you and everyone who makes this possible, including your supporters. I am so glad that we have you in the world and that you are putting this um putting this out there so thank you thank you thank you thank you you are too sweet you win favorite yes. guest award <laughs> <laughs> no we so appreciate it thank you for making us feel seen and thank you for blessing our show with your knowledge my pleasure thank you to our guest francisco ramirez you can find out more about all of his projects at franciscoramirez.com our editor is karen y chan D.L. Dallas Engram created our theme song. Judith Walker created our logos and cover art. And our ad music is by Siddhartha Courses. You can support the show by visiting patreon.com backslash cringe watchers. Subscribe today and get cool perks like a shout out on the show. Speaking of which, we want to give a huge thank you to Anthony and Lakita, our newest supporters on the show. We can't thank you enough. And I love you both so much. You can also show your love by rating and reviewing the show and follow us on Instagram at cringe watchers and Twitter at cringe watchers. Thank you so much for cringe watching with us. 